and welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi. I'm the chief economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm uh, joined by my uh, two colleagues, uh, Ryan Sweet, who's uh, head of real-time economics, uh, whiz with the data, and we'll come back to that in just a second. Chris Dorides, the uh, deputy chief economist. And we have a, um, oh, and I should have said something nice about you, Chris, too. Sorry about that. Uh, Chris knows a lot about, (laughs) I don't need to. Okay, then I won't. That's, it's fine. Yeah, uh, and we're also joined by a special guest, uh, Jim Parrott. Uh, Jim and I have been working together. Jim, this is a quiz. What was the ask. first oh. paper we ever co-authored? Do you know? Oh, actually, you- I, that, I think that's an easy. I think I can get that one. I think it's um, opening the credit box, right? Wasn't that the that's, first? That, that's it. Do you do you happen to remember the year? Yeah, because it's when I left, so it would have been 2013. Yeah, absolutely. Do you remember the month? Oh, geez, well, come on, you're pushing it. Um, let's see. Let me think about this. So when I left left the White House, oh, no. I, I went into uh, hiding for, I don't know, six months. So maybe this, maybe July, August, something like that. Maybe? Yeah, that's when we wrote it. We actually published it in September of 2013, opening oh. the credit box. Because back then, of course, the issue was uh, coming out of the financial crisis, credit was still pretty tight. And, and you know, uh, I, I hated that title, even though the credit box thing got really? to be a, a thing. And the reason oh. is it evoked Pandora's box to me. I thought, oh God, we don't want to oh. open that box. That seems like a terrible thing to open. Oh, that's um, But it stuck, like opening the, the credit box became like a thing. Like we didn't talk in terms of the, no. really the credit box even. that We've taken that for granted since, but that wasn't really a term so much until that paper. And so I was I, wrong. I, my Pandora we, box confusion or concern was misplaced, it turned out. I think we coined that that term credit box. I'm yeah, pretty sure. I, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah, I think we did. And we, we've written a, a, a just a lot of papers since then. I mean, uh, we actually should, I should do this, go back and just take a look. But, you know, the, the can I ask you this? What was your favorite paper that we wrote? Oh, for? goodness. Um, you know, I... It's probably the this series of papers we did on GSU form just because we got to actually come up with a soup yep. to nuts kind of plan, which yep. was fun. I mean, actually doing the whole whiteboard king for a day, what would you do yep. um, beginning then was kind of fun as opposed to complaining about what somebody else is doing, which we often do, or like um, haggling around the edges of, of, of some issue. We got to sort of build the car out from the beginning to end, which is kind of fun. So probably that series, I think. I totally agree. I think we wrote four papers around yeah, that, the, yeah. uh, the uh, Promising Road papers. And I, I, I'm sorry for the listener. I, I didn't even introduce you. I just took it for granted that, yeah. So, so Jim uh, is at the Urban Institute, has his own firm with Bob Ryan, a former official at the uh, senior official at FHFA, the regulator for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and uh, is just very well known and very well respected in in Washington, uh, particularly in housing and housing finance circles. And before that, you were in the White House. You, you mentioned that. Uh, and uh, on, were you on NEC? Were you in the National? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, um, I was the housing guy at the NEC. NEC. Kind of like what uh, Barat is doing now. Yeah, although Barat covers a broader range of, of issues than I did. I was, so I came in after the team was pretty well fleshed out and so there was like a manufacturing guy and an energy guy and a small business gal and so forth so i was sort of the housing person at this point um it's much more thinly staffed and so you've got a few people covering um lots of issues back then at least when i showed up it was a little more fully uh, fully formed than that well of course housing in that period was like front and center right i mean that was the financial crisis so yeah it was a mess yeah it was a mess, was a mess. and 
And, and even going before that, you were at FHA, you were senior advisor uh, to- To Sean, the Secretary Donovan. Donovan. Yeah, yeah. I, I was sort of a, a roving, I joined to be his advisor on whatever he needed help with. And it just turned out that the first big mess that he needed help with was FHA. That they had, they had discovered from their accountant that they were gonna go below the statutory minimum capital level and uh and so sean said what what is that exactly you know the mmi fund he wasn't quite yeah. sure what, nor was i sure what any of that meant and so dave stevens happened to be joining at the same time as, as head of fha he knew, knew almost as little as i did so the two of us together had to um hold lots and lots of meetings to figure out um, what earth was going on and so i think if there had been like a public housing crisis in in sort of june of 2009, I would have become maybe a public housing person, but instead it happened to be a housing finance mess. And so here I am. Right, did, you, did you know that uh, for that uh, that actuarial report, FHA puts it together every year, they use our forecasts, our interest rate forecasts. Oh, do they really? Yeah, right. So, and I didn't know that until someone told me, and they've been doing it for a couple of years. It turns out if the interest rate forecast changes, you know, not by very much. Oh, it's dramatic. It's dramatic. Yeah, it, well, it affects Heckam dramatically, Heckam, which in yeah, turn Heckam, yeah. affects everything else. So, yeah. Yeah, Heck, Heckam being the reverse mortgage, uh, you know, uh, a program that uh, FHA uh, runs. And and prior to that, uh, how did how did you even get into to Washington? Just, yeah, that's a that's a. I don't know if um, I even asked you that question. No, I, I, I'll yeah. try to make that a brief uh, yeah. a story that is less meandering than the reality that it will describe. But um, so. My wife was dying to get back to DC. We live in Chapel Hill and lived in Chapel Hill then. And um, I was a, um, a sort of civil litigator uh, down here and had been a civil litigator up at Sullivan Cromwell in New York. And I knew that whatever I would do in DC, it couldn't be uh, you know, a white shoe law firm gig again. And so I thought, well, what does one do in DC? Well, you, you go do political stuff and policy <laughs> stuff, but I had no background in either. And luckily that was 2008. And, um, and I loved Obama as a candidate at that point. And I thought, well, I'll just, I'll go see if they need help over on the campaign. I'd never done any campaign, campaign work or anything and talked my way into the, uh, the campaign, the North Carolina campaign office, which is not too far away. Um, talked my way into the director of policy position for the state of North Carolina in the general election. And, uh, and that you know, obviously went well. And then when the, the, the madness of um, job searches happened once Obama won, uh, housing just seemed like the most interesting thing to sort of do at the time. I had no background housing whatsoever. Literally, if you looked at my resume, the word housing wouldn't have been on there anywhere. Hmm. And uh, But it just seemed like that would be the most interesting place to be. And so I thought, well, wh where does one go to do that? And I thought, well, I guess you either go to Treasury or HUD. And I thought, well, goodness, there are bound to be lots of people that want to go to Treasury. I'll, they'll, they'll put me in a basement if I can get in at all. But HUD, <laughs> I mean, maybe there's a, an angle there. So I, I put all of what you know minimal resources and juice I had on getting into HUD. And so... Um, I managed to get into HUD and, and uh, the chief of staff at HUD looked at my resume, also noticed that the word housing wasn't on there. And she said, well, like, what, what do we do with you? And I said, honestly, I don't care. As long as I get the answer to the secretary, I'll, I'll, we'll figure it out. And so suddenly, you know, that, that seemed to work. And they put me, my first job title, I, I discovered this cleaning up the attic the other day because you get like a little certificate. Yeah. I was special assistant to the office of administration which didn't actually exist. That is, there was no assistant secretary. It was like a, it's like a, 
um, a uh, uh, Kafka-esque sort of, you know, non-agency within a non-building sort of thing. But it's where they put me because that's where funding was or something. I don't, I'm not sure I quite followed. And uh, and so I, you know, walked into my my uh, job the first day and went and visited Sean. And it just so happened, as he's trying to figure out what on earth to do with me, that this FHA mess hit his desk about the same time I walked in. And he had no idea what else to do with me. So he he said, go, go meet this guy, Dave Stevens, and figure out what to do. Oh, so. my gosh. That's a great story. Isn't that, isn't that random? Utterly, utterly circuitous. Yeah, well, thank, thank goodness it happened that way, because otherwise we wouldn't have written the dozen papers we had and have this great friendship. And, the, and the, the, actually, uh, uh, the country would be diminished by it because you've been so important to uh, helping guide uh, things through over the, well, since the financial crisis. So. I appreciate that. I mean, it, it does suggest that... Um, uh, life is a little less linear and predictable than uh, than one might think. When, when I'm asked well, to give career advice to kids, it's always a disaster because my story is utterly impossible to replicate. It makes almost no sense to anybody who's trying to decide what to do with one's one's career. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Okay, so um, this, this uh, podcast, uh, by tradition, and we've now got two months of tradition here on Inside Economics. Uh, hard to believe, right, Chris? Uh, part one is... Uh, uh, we talk a little bit about the data in our favorite statistics of the week, and we're going to do that in just a second. Part two and the big topic, and we're going to talk about housing, housing finance, and great to have you here to, to uh, help with that discussion. And then I'll just uh, kind of bring it all together in part three very quickly. So so we always generally, not always, generally we start with Ryan because such he's a maven on the data. So Ryan, uh, what statistic is a top of mind for you uh, today? This was a hard week. There were so many data points that came out, but I picked 2, 2.3%. 2.3%. 2.3%. 2.3%. This week is going to be really hard. I mean, there was so much stuff that came out. Yeah. You, do you know, Chris, what that would be? 2.3%? 2.3%. No. I'll give you a clue. Uh, I, mean, I want to go clue. back to the... Go ahead. What's it's the clue? one part of the economy that's booming. Well, most parts of the economy are booming. What are you talking about? That's not a clue. <laughs> not all, like, not all. <laughs> oh, come on. You should be, if it was like one part of the economy that was not booming, I'd say, okay, 2.3%. Ah, geez. I want to go to the personal consumption report. Yeah. No, no, not no. go. No, okay, I give up. I give up. Uh, what is it? Non-defense capital goods orders. Oh, oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. This is of course. You're, I know you guys are going to give me crap about the number of the pick, but this is an important one. It is. It's it important. It feeds into um, business investment uh, and equipment in, in the NIPA accounts. It does. It and does it indeed. has been really, really strong. So after the number came out, our high frequency GDP model yeah. now has real business investment in equipment up 16% uh, annualized in the second quarter. Oh, so what is GDP in the second quarter now? It's tracking 9.9%. Oh, really? Okay. Yep. Uh, that's very close. To, I think our forecast is just a little over 10, isn't it? I believe. Yeah. I think so. But we're yes. we're well above the consensus. Are we Q2. really? For Q, Q2, we're above the consensus. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's a good sign. So businesses are investing. Uh, feels like they're really kicking into gear. Good. Yeah. That's if you look at the investment details of the yeah. Q1 GDP revisions, uh -huh. intellectual property investment got revised up a lot. Like six percentage points. That's one of your favorite. You you said that leads productivity growth, um, which mm -hmm. I guess makes intuitive sense. So that's a good sign. Yeah, good. Okay, okay. That, that's that. That is a good statistic. I, yeah, I shouldn't have made fun of you, but uh, 
but that was a pretty bad clue. That was a pretty <laughs> bad clue. Jeez Louise. Uh, okay, Chris, you're up. Uh, what, what's your statistic? All right, 106.2, down 4.4% from March. Oh, I know what that is. Yeah, I, I got knew that. you would. I knew you would. It's uh, thematic. What is it? Actually, I don't know what it is. I, I, no. Is, 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 hold on, wait a second. Pending. Yes. Oh, I was going to say that. That's oh, you weren't. You were not going to say that. <laughs> that is not fair. I was going to say that. <laughs> listener, listener, listen to me. I was going to say that. But they didn't give me a chance to say that. Yeah, okay. You had an opportunity. But... Yep. You all, see, here's the problem with Chris. Chris always goes to the housing data. Well, Chris, can I ask you a question? Yeah. How big a deal is that? I mean, what, is it, what does that mean? That it, and first of all, explain what pending sales are. Well, I think a lot of pe people don't know what that is. So pending sales are uh, sales contracts that have not yet closed, right? So they're, it's a, it's a leading indicator of, um, of home sales, right? So one, two months uh, ahead of time. Yeah. So uh, I see, so because of that, it is a, it's a, an important statistic to follow because it gives you a sense of where things might be headed. Um, now things can change, it's not perfect, right? Things could accelerate or slow down, but uh, it's, a, it's a pretty good leading indicator for housing activity. Yeah. It's the lowest it's been since May of last year, May of 2020. So it's in, in at least an indication that things may be, uh, may be slowing down to either due to supply constraints, that's what most people chalk it up to, but we also see some data that's suggesting that home buyers are frustrated and they're, some of them are giving up. They're saying, I can't find anything to buy, I'll just you know, stay put, remodel, wait things out, yes. or as a renter, I, you know, I'm going to enjoy my summer. I'm not going to, but I can't even try to look for a home. Uh, and what does 106 so. measure exactly? Like, what is the that, number? It's just an index uh, value. Uh, index, got it. No so. one in the world talks about the index itself. They're always looking at the change. So yeah. he threw me off initially with 106. Well, that was intentional. I, I knew that. I did know that. I knew that. I was going to say. That was intentional. That's just not fair. Not so fair. existing. You're young. You're young. You're young. You're young. You've got to give the old guy a little chance to. All right, I'll give you first tips now. Okay. But pending home sales lead existing by <laughs> that one sounded to two patronizing. Months. That sounded patronizing. I'm, I'm just, just saying. Just payback. <laughs> For the last 16 years. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, stick. You, yeah, you're doing okay with sticking with me. You're doing fine. You're. you're no, yeah, you're, it's fine. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay, this I got a, gr a great place to uh, to correct them if you feel otherwise. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Exactly. All right, I got one for you. This this is a this is a, a good one, and I think it's a fair one. Thirty four point six. Thirty four point six. I think I think Ryan, you should get this one. And this came out this week. Uh, I think it did. I, I no. Pretty sure it did. I th I'm pretty sure it did. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Okay. The weeks all blend in together. You know, this whole zooming thing is messing me up. Uh, I don't know if it's this week. I think it's this week. And, it's, and it is related to the labor market, so related to the job market, but it's not a labor market statistic per se. Uh, it's based on a survey. I know what you have. Okay, what is it? No, I'll let Chris guess, or Jim, because oh. I don't want to get in trouble again. <laughs> we see Jim, and this is what we do for fun. We sit around yeah. and- uh, Guess this number. Guess this number. Well, yeah. Ryan's dog behind him has already fallen asleep, so I hate exactly. to guess what you're listening to do. Oh. oh, boy. Oh, that was rude. All right, go for it, Ryan. <laughs> Wait, first, wasn't there a game show named that tune? Yeah, absolutely. I, this is kind of like, right. it's kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
It's the boring it, version of that. It, <laughs> <laughs> so it's the conference board. Is it yep. the percent of consumers saying jobs are plentiful? Yep. All right. Less percent saying that yep. they're hard yep. to get. Yep. So it's the labor market differential. Yeah. The so-called labor market differential. This is the interesting thing about it. 34.6 is about as high as it was uh, in late 2019 before the pandemic, when the when the labor market was rip roaring tight, when the unemployment rate was three and a half percent. So uh, that would, you know, if 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 that and that measure is a pretty good proxy for unemployment rate, right, Ryan? I mean, it does a yeah, pretty, it does a pretty good, good job. job. Mm-hmm. And, and you use that in, in trying to forecast, like for next Friday, we're going to get the jobs number and the unemployment rate data. And you use this statistic to help you uh, estimate what that unemployment rate is going to be. Yeah, it's one of the inputs. Yeah, One of the inputs. So that uh, that's a that's a that's a very strong number, suggests the labor market's coming back very, very fast. So um, the economy is, is doing well. Uh, I remember last week, before we dive into housing, we're going to do that in just a second, we did talk about a few indicators we should be watching on a regular basis. And Chris, you mentioned unemployment insurance. That was also good news, right? On, yes. on the UI? Yep. Yep. What was it? Uh, 404? 404. Yep. That and that's yep, so. that that's coming in pretty quickly now. Yeah, very quickly. It is. It is. So yeah, the, all the labor market signs are, are very positive at this point. And again, just for context, a, a really good the economy's great, everything's perfect, would be 250, you know, yeah. weekly yeah. unemployment claims. So yeah. we're, we're coming in pretty fast here, and that's that's very good. The other was copper prices. Uh, that's a pretty good proxy for, you know, broader uh, strength in the, in the global economy and inflationary pressures. I just looked. That was $4.66 a pound. And remember, the threshold is if you're over 4 bucks, that, that means things are really booming. And, and there's a lot of inflationary pressure out there uh, in commodity markets and industrial markets. So that's still very, very strong, very, very close to record highs. And Ryan, you do had you, one too. I can't remember. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Chris. I was just going to ask, do you shift that out, or do you consider at all the shift in um, demand for electric vehicles and the kind of the greener economy and how that might affect copper prices, at least in a medium term here? Is there is that yeah, threshold? Uh, should we... I don't, I, would you change that or? Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe. No, no, I don't. I, mean, I don't think it's a big deal. I mean, certainly not for what we're using it here for. You know, trying to gauge where we are in kind of the business cycle. You know, maybe it matters if you look out two, three, four, five years. Maybe, you know, it'll start drifting higher, kind of the trend level, the right, the, the long run level. But I don't know. If that's a big deal at this point in time. Uh, still not yet. Uh, Ryan, you had one too, right? Well, I can't remember what yours was. What's ten year treasury yield? Oh, and, and that would have happened there. It really hasn't budged that much. Nothing, I mean, it's yeah. crept lower recently, which is a little bit surprising yeah. given you know the really strong inflation numbers that we've gotten. So it's holding in there, 1.59, 1.6%. Yeah. Hey, did you happen to notice in the president's budget that came out today that they are assuming a 2.8% 10-year treasury yield in the long run? Did, did you, you talk that? to them? Uh, that was not my forecast. That was, right. that was, that's their forecast. What, what do you think of that? Is that prudent? Prudently. Two point eight percent in the long run. Yeah. They're probably a little low, but probably a little low. You yeah. you probably think they're really low. Yeah. No, I I think three and a half percent is the long run equilibrium, right? right? So I don't know, seventy basis points low, but you know, it, it's 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 in the ballpark, I think. 
mm-hmm. you know, given given all the uncertainty here. Okay, all right. Well, that was very good. Uh, although I'm not sure, Ryan. Ryan's playing. You know, he's just not playing fair. As I, that was, this How is that not fair? It's one of the. Uh, <laughs> Isn't it durable goods numbers? You guys have money riding on this or something? Is there like some kind of tension here that I'm picking up on? No, we have a bet. And actually, I I lose every bet I have with these guys. So it's like, you know, very disappointing. Um, Okay, so let's talk about housing. And, uh, you you know, top of mind uh, is these surging house prices that we're seeing across the country. Did I I see, I think FHFA came out with uh, its house price for uh, I think for the month of uh, April, I believe. And it was 13, 14, 15%, something like that year over year. I think it might be the strongest, uh, could it be the strongest on record? I'm, I'm not quite sure, but you know, the, the, the statistics are, the, the housing price statistics here, are, uh, you know, no pun intended, literally through the roof. And the question I'm now getting uh, from clients uh, in, in the media and just everyone is, uh, are we in a bubble? Uh, is this a bubble in the housing market? And I don't know, Jim, do you have any perspective on that? You, you know, know, I'll be curious to hear what you guys say, because it's I, I get this question too, and I struggle with it, um, probably in part because I struggle with the whole concept of a bubble. But to the degree uh, one thinks of a bubble as a spike in demand um, or caused by a, a spike in demand that's, that's driven at least in part by... Um, less by judgment about sort of underlying economic conditions or realities, um, and at least in part by the perception of consumers about what other consumers think value looks like. So you're sort of betting on this uh, uh, projection you've got of of how others are going to evaluate the same product. And so when it becomes unmoored from underlying sort of economic reality and becomes this, this social phenomenon in a way, it obviously lends itself to speculation and um, and price spikes because you know confidence has this almost geometric impact where everybody's confidence reinforces everybody else's confidence and off you go. And of course, it makes the um, the heights you hit pretty precarious because a little bit of doubt then um, has a, the same geometric impact going down that it had going up. But here, uh, I mean, there's some obvious economic realities that are driving um, mm-hmm. driving all this. Obviously, you've got supply constraints that are playing a significant role, which you and I have written a fair amount about. And then, um, you know, you've got this sort of mass migration in reaction to the virus of, you know, mm-hmm. so folks looking to buy homes elsewhere. And so it at least started from a place that didn't feel very much like at least how I think of a bubble. And I guess the question I now struggle with, so I would have said definitively, a few months ago, no, it's not a bubble. It's it's just a, it's driven by you know economic reality that's that's rational in nature. But you can't help. But, I can't help but wonder whether or not what began um, in a very unbubble-like way has begun to take on, at least in some pockets, uh, a bubble-like feature where people see that home prices are going up, even if they're going up for rational economic reasons, um, and they think differently about the you know the the product that is housing. And begin to speculate a little and think about um, how they value it in ways that feel a little more bubble-like. So I, I was not concerned a few months ago. I'm a little more concerned now because of that because I'm not sure if we've transitioned from something that felt unbubble-like to something that um, might be more bubble-like. It's that's a a very quasi-economist like one hand on the other hand. No, kind of no, answer, I, but I, it, it, it's yeah, kind of how I, I feel at it. the moment. I think you nailed the 
the definition of a bubble, right? It's it's kind of when markets get uh, infected by speculation, and speculation is people buying and selling simply based on the idea that they can sell what they bought a couple months ago or uh, several months ago at a higher price with no, nothing other than that, you know, simply that. So, uh, I mean, I think that's what you said. I mean, I think that's a very good description of, you know, of a, of a bubble. Let me ask you, I, someone was saying this to me yesterday, Jim, that they were concerned that, uh, that uh, because Fannie and Freddie are not, this is my wife, listener. This is my wife. This is this is how we communicate when I'm talking to the world. What time is your podcast? Uh, it is now. Do you? Do I want brownies today? Okay, oh, it's my just, birthday. That's... It's my birthday today. So do it's I your want... birthday today. Oh, oh you're yeah. really? Whoa! Mark has the worst habit. He leaves out all the good stuff until yeah. the end of the podcast. Like I, mean, I think you're making blueberries ten times. I, I don't think there is a sticky note that your wife <laughs> handed you. I think you're look. just telling thought, the world that it's your no, birthday. Wait. That is you such a sad way to announce that it's your birthday. Yes or no? Yes or no? I don't. I don't know her handwriting. I'm not sure that I buy that. All right, I'm. I'm checking. Why not? Yes. There's no downside to yes. Right? No, that's fair. Get some brownies. Okay. As long as they're straight up brownies, I don't know. This podcast could go sideways pretty quickly. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. <laughs> uh, anyway, what was I saying? Oh, uh, so uh, uh, this was some, what someone was saying to me uh, uh, yesterday that you know, I guess Fannie and Freddie are waiving appraisals. Uh, I, I I don't know. I think maybe certainly on refi. I'm not if they're. I'm not sure they're doing it on purchase. Like a streamline refi, right? Stream yeah, streamline refi. I don't think and that they thought that this might be contributing to kind of the what's going on in the market because you know the 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 uh, there's no tying it back to any kind of fundamental value that they're making loans based simply well uh uh without an appraisal (laughs) they they feel fine with that with doing that is do you sense that as Uh, no i in fact i i'd heard somewhat the opposite in the sense that um we we Fannie and Freddie moved uh, to a much higher tolerance for automated appraisals during the virus because the logistical challenges of actually going out and getting a human being and having them walk around your house when nobody knows who's got the, the plague as it were. So they, they to their credit, um, took steps to make it easier to get an automated appraisal so, that, so as not to um, sort of impede closings and the like. And, and I think many of us had assumed that that and other moves towards more automated processes, um, which uh, will lend themselves to a more sort of digitized, automated sort of housing finance infrastructure, which seems like a good thing, at least in the abstract. Um, I at least had assumed that that the virus was going to expedite this transition we were going to see anyway, um, and that it was going to force FHA to sort of move into the 20th century, if not the 21st mm-hmm. century and all that. And, and interestingly, what I've heard from clients, and it's just anecdotal, I haven't dug into it yet, um, FHFA is beginning to roll some of that shift back. Uh, and appraisals was an example where they are putting back into place rules that are going to force you to go and get a manual appraisal, where two months ago, you could have made do with an automated appraisal. That, of course, slows you know, turnaround times up, it increases cost. And so the lenders I've talked to have been complaining about that. So the sense I've gotten, I don't know how illustrative is of the bigger yeah. problem, uh, yeah. but cuts in the other direction. 
Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that until uh, someone had mentioned that yesterday, and I, 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 I that makes more sense to me. Um, hey, Chris, I know you've been thinking about this too, and and looking at some of the data. It sounds I I think you're you're kind of landing in the same place that uh, Jim is right on on this issue about a bubble in the housing market. Is yeah, that right? the, yeah, that's yeah. right. So in terms of the you know the need for some speculative fervor uh, to to define it, right? I also. Leverage isn't a requirement, but certainly would fuel it as well. And we don't see the crazy type of lending going on. Mortgage standards are still relatively tight. So from that perspective, it doesn't doesn't sound to me like a bubble. Uh, could we have a correction of some sort? Could things slow down? Certainly, I could see that happening. Um, but I don't see a, a, uh, a 2009-style crash uh, anytime soon. So. Yeah. And of course, we we've gotten some data on um, on flips, right? So we get actual yep, transactions, right. and a flip is defined. We define it as a sale that occurs within uh, one year of the previous sale. Right. Uh, so it's a it's you know that uh, and it's arm's length transaction. Uh, and I think we found that in the most recent few months, it's been seven eight percent of sales. So seven eight percent of sales are flips by that definition. And that compares to, in the bubble, something that's at least three times that. I think it was like 20, 25%, something like that's that. Right. That's and, right. And actually, 7, 8% is low by historical Historic. standards. Yeah. yeah. So that's that right. kind of gives you a sense that, if, based on kind of Jim's definition of speculation, that, you know, uh, that uh, we're not seeing that yet in, in the market. So it, yeah. it feels, market feels highly valued, overvalued, stretched, uh, but hard to, conclude that it's a bubble at least at this point you know i can give you an anecdote a, a local anecdote that um is probably only worth the value of a, a, an anecdote but we had where i live in chapel hill we had um a lot of sales um over the last quarter as home prices the the, the appreciation of home prices seemed to lure a lot of folks into the market who sort of woke up to realize that that their homes were worth more than they realized and and so their tolerance to move um, had shifted, and so it, it felt like the we had a sudden influx of supply in our community uh, that that led to a fair amount of, of interesting sort of churn. A lot of people moving down from New York and elsewhere because of the virus. There are other dynamics too, um, but the supply has largely disappeared in town, and um, and the number of homes in various parts of the market have you know a fraction of what they were a few months ago, and so the the sales have kind of. I would say dried up. So home prices remain quite high. Um, but but if your metric, I would think in a bubble, it's not just prices, it's actual transactions that are that are, you know, that are a factor in all this. And so in Chapel Hill, if you were to judge, if you were to ask the bubble question in terms of home prices, then this month looks just like it did three months ago or four months ago, but would be very misleading because we don't have much sales, if any. And so mm. it's hard to imagine mm -hmm. defining what we've got now here as a, as a bubble when no one's actually buying or selling. Transacting. Homes. Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Hey, hey, Ryan, do you want to weigh in on this question of a bubble? Uh, do you have a, diff a different perspective or any, any thoughts? No, I agree with everything. I mean, okay. the other thing is it's, a, it's hard to pin a bubble. Uh, also, I think bubbles can get a lot bigger before they pop and it's you know hard to predict that. But I also think it's it's this demand is going to remain strong for the next few years, which means house prices are likely going to be uh, you know, rising year in and year out because of the millennials. You get what a huge wave of millennials that are coming into their 
prime uh, first-time home buying uh, age. Yep. Okay. Hey, another fundamental reason for uh, the view that you know the market may, while it may be overvalued and you know may go sideways here a little bit when interest rates start to rise, but won't won't crash. It's not it's not a bubble bursting. Is the supply side of, and Jim, you were alluding to this and talking about it. Supply side of the market is is very constrained, uh, both in terms of inventory for sale, but also in terms of new housing supply. And you and I recently wrote a paper about this. And, um, you know, uh, it would be good to get your perspective uh, uh, on uh, how big a deal you think this issue, this issue is around uh, affordable housing supply. Yeah, it's a real mess. Um, I don't envy the policymaker community at all having to deal with it because uh, it's, it's creating a a pretty brutal affordability problem right in the part of the market where you don't want it, which is entry level homes in areas with jobs, right? I mean, it's just a, the worst possible sort of headwind you could come up with because it affects, um, you know, labor mobility. It affects the ability of folks to get into homeownership to begin with and, uh, and all that. And then um, it, it's being driven by a bunch of factors uh, that, um, that largely fall outside of the normal housing policy toolkit. You know, it's being driven by you know, immigration policy and education policy that's affecting labor costs. It's being driven by uh, trade policy that's affecting you know, the cost of materials. It's being driven by you know, municipality level decision-making that's affecting the cost of land because of zoning and the like. And so if you're the, the housing, if you had my old job and you're sitting at the NEC and you're trying to come up with you know, what tools in my toolkit am I going to deploy to deal with this problem? Uh, it's not obvious which ones you, you latch on to. Uh, and until they deal with it, until you, you at least um, shrink the, the, the size of the problem, it kind of freezes them in place on a bunch of other uh, issues. So, for instance, uh, they're rightfully concerned about, um, you know, the racial homeownership gap. Uh, but it's not quite clear what you do with big demand side solutions that aren't going to get folded into home prices. You know, if you've got limited stock and you give uh, a broad segment of population more money to spend, you know, there's a concern that all you're going to do is drive up pricing and, and not really, you know, help um, expand home ownership in any sort of obvious way. And so uh, it's both it's both hard to solve or it's both important uh, and hard to solve. And it's got ripple effects that really um, affect sort of the whole housing policy landscape um, in a way that uh, is pretty unnerving. Uh, so I think it's a big deal, and I think it's not going away anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah. And Chris, you've done a lot of work in this area, too. Do you, do you have a sense of the size of the problem? I mean, the scale of the problem? Can you give us any context in terms of that? Uh, it's a little tricky, right? It depends on how you want to measure it, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you look at, you know, if you look at rental um, or the uh, the strain on on renters today, it, it, it renters are more strained, but they're actually less strained. Right, fewer are severely burdened relative to 2011. So, you know, I think we have to be a little cautious here, not to overemphasize the problem. Uh, clearly, there is an affordable housing issue, but I'm not sure. To your point, Jane, uh, Jim, I don't think we're actually focusing on the right tools uh, to address it. We're, if we focus on the inputs, you know, wages, lumber, all of these things, they, these are these will adjust. These markets will adjust. Mm. From my mind, it's it's the zoning that's the real issue, mm -hmm. and that is it's gotten some attention now in the, in the latest Biden plan, but it's still very very small relative to 
all the other uh, programs that are trying to emphasize, you know, really, really putting more money at throwing more money at the problem. But uh, until we solve, solve the zoning issue, we're not going to create or build out a lot more supply here. Well, what would you have them do, uh, Chris? I mean, I mean, the federal government has limited tools to address what's going on at a local level, uh, particularly around zoning. So what would you have them do? Uh, they have some some tools, and I think there was a good start. In the latest proposal I saw, there's $5 billion allocated uh, to provide grants uh, to areas that do uh, address their exclusionary zoning issues. So more of a carrot uh, approach, right? So address the zoning and we'll, you know, government will give additional funds. I think that's that's a good approach. Um, but you're right, it is it is tricky given the uh, the local politics, but I, I think that's that's probably the best we can do. But I, I would certainly put much more emphasis on that part of the uh, the plan than than the other parts. I mean, increasing the trust fund, that, that's good, that, that's helpful, but it's not gonna really increase the supply as much as uh, you, you mean the housing zoning. trust fund? Correct, uh, correct. The housing that's, trust fund, which is, right. was, which is, I think, the biggest part of the Biden, the most costly part of correct. what President Biden has proposed is to expand the housing trust fund, which goes to building out affordable rental property, right? Yeah, so, low, low to moderate low, income. Yeah, right. So, uh, subsidies, right. right. Yeah. The zoning stuff, though, is it's interesting because um, I think we discovered in the last election cycle how controversial it can be. I mean, I agree wholeheartedly that it's, it's, it's at the center of the thicket of challenges and all this. And until you deal with it aggressively, it's, it's hard to see how you solve uh, the much of the problem. Um, I mean, you, could, you other tools will help for sure, but zoning strikes me as maybe the biggest impediment of all. But um, uh, and it seems like five billion is a pretty, given the scale of the problem, is a pretty yeah. small carrot to wave around unless you're going to give it to one community. Um, so either they need a yeah. much larger carrot or a stick. And, and the stick problem um, is, uh, if, if you think back to the, the most recent election, the only way housing made it in to the general election was when Trump brought up uh, scary high rises in white suburban America. I mean, he, he dropped the race car just as clearly as, as one could drop it. And it was, it was focused on affirmatively furthering how, fair housing. So it was a slightly different variation of all this, but it is very easy to see how you could uh, sweep in uh, any aggressive move uh, to, to use a stick here um, to that populist sort of narrative of you know, scary people at high rises coming in and you know, threatening soccer moms, which is essentially what Trump was uh, suggesting. So I, I agree that that in an ideal world, that's probably where you got to go. And you probably have to have a stick. It's probably not just a, a carrot. It's probably um, it's probably tying transportation funds to, you know, a communities being open to inclusionary zoning. Mark and I've written about this before, or it's uh, tying more HUD funding that these communities depend on to um, to some, you know, steps uh, on inclusionary zoning. So it's probably, um, those are sort of passive aggressive, you know, yeah. carrots maybe, you know, <laughs> so you're, you're getting all this money anyway, but we're not gonna give it to you anymore unless you you, you play nice. But the moment they play that card, they better, you know, better be ready to play some pretty rough politics over this because of, um, I think the, the whistle that Trump blew in the last election. That's not to say they shouldn't do it, um, but I think that's probably one of the reasons why they went a little small on this uh, in their in their proposal. Well, I guess the five billion—it's almost like a pilot, right? I yeah. mean, 
Let's right. see if it works. You know, let's see what kind of behavioral response we get from a local governments. You know, how much will they engage with us on this? Yeah, fair but, And you do have but, some experiments going on around the country, right? In Portland, Minnesota, right? You yeah, have some areas yeah. that are trying up zoning. They're trying. Yeah, so we'll get some trying. data off of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the way I view the, the Biden housing proposal, you know, as everyone, well, as most people know now, because we've been talking about it on this podcast for quite a bit. And I know you're all careful listeners of inside economics. <laughs> uh, in the American Jobs Plan, that's the uh, infrastructure pl- uh, proposal that President Biden put forward uh, back now, probably six, eight weeks ago. Housing was has, is part of that. Uh, if you add it all up, it's almost 300 billion in additional support. Chris, you mentioned the Housing Trust Fund. That's the biggest piece of that. Uh, it's 300 billion over over 10 years. And sort of my sense of it is that it's kind of a second best solution. So, you know, the political landmines and just the practicality of trying to get local governments to change their zoning, that's that's a process at best. That's going to take a while to actually get results there. But uh, the second best solution is let me uh, provide funding to help build. You know, let's go let's go build, you know, LIHTC credits for you know, low income rental, housing trust fund, you know, grants, direct grants, uh, more money for, you know, public, uh, the, the uh, capital fund for public housing, the home program. Um, Jim, is that a fair way, do you think, of thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, I, we tend to oversimplify uh, what we mean when we say there's a housing supply problem. There are like 15 different versions of a housing supply. There's Cleveland's got one version, Detroit's got a slightly different one, Seattle's got a different chapter, you know. So so th- the fact that it feels like a bit of a hodgepodge, I'm not sure is a criticism, uh, at least to me, because I, I, it feels like uh, what they've done is they have put together a mix of block grants for some communities that can spend the money to solve their idiosyncratic challenges in a way that's appropriate. Um, investments that uh, will like to CDFIs and the like that will hopefully attract private capital to help solve the problem a bit. Um, uh, so in tax credits that you know will also bring some more private capital to bear. So it feels like um, they've, they've come up with a, a pretty wide range of tools which shouldn't surprise shouldn't have surprised us ex ante because there are a pretty wide range of impediments to all this. So my, if I have a, if I had a criticism, it would be twofold. One, um, I wish I wish they were a little more aggressive on the zoning piece, um, but that's not an end all be all. There are more problems in zoning, and they hit the other problems pretty hard. And then they, my second criticism, which isn't necessarily a criticism of the of the White House, it's more of a um, the political policy culture generally is. It just hasn't gotten enough attention. I mean, I, I, this strikes me as a, a pretty significant problem that, that flows through to a lot of other economic sort of uh, policies that, that we are paying more attention to, whether it's broadband or bridges and roads or whatever. Um, but somehow housing, um, it just hasn't, it hasn't broken into a top tier kind of category for people to lock onto. Um, and, and that, that I, I, I'm more critical of that than I am of the specifics of what they've actually proposed. So if they, if they in other words, if we saw everything they proposed make it through, um, I think it would, you know, wouldn't solve the problem in its entirety because of zoning and some other things and because this will take a long time to solve anyway, but it'll, it'll go about as far as they could go without fixing zoning. Um, so my concern is more 
Like, are we going to see this whole package get through anyway? Um, or are they going to settle for focusing on other areas that are getting more attention? So I'm a little more nervous about that than I am about what they've actually proposed. Yeah. How would you handicap things at this point? Do you think there, a package will get through that will include some of the housing related? You know, I, so I think, yes. I, th I think eventually um, once the dust settles and we've seen, uh, you know, whatever uh, regular order stuff get passed, get passed, and the reconciliation stuff get through, I think you'll see at least in the reconciliation package, housing as a part of that. What the size is, I don't know. It probably depends on what mansions willing to spend by way of tax increases. I do worry though that that if um, they've got to lower their overall uh, expenditure in this, that housing is one of the first to get downsized. So I'm a little nervous that it winds up being you know half of what they propose. It, it seems though that. Um, it's very unlikely to make it into any regular order package, you know, out of a bipartisan agreement. It seems like the Republicans have, for reasons I don't quite follow, defined infrastructure in a way that just has no room for housing. And so that's just not going to find its way into their to bipartisan package. But I'm pretty comfortable that assuming there's a reconciliation package to follow, it'll make its way into that. I'm just a little worried that it's not as big as what they put on the table. Yeah. It's interesting if you do the arithmetic and they've got the total $300 billion package through, that would create, you know, by my calculation, a couple million homes on, on top of all the other homes that will be built without the support. And that's almost exactly equal to what my estimate would be of the shortage. So if I look at the, short, the, the shortfall today, and the way I, I do that is I just look at the vacancy rate across the housing stock day compared to its long run average, the difference is the shortage. And if you do the arithmetic, that comes up to 1.5, 1.6 million units. And then if you look at current supply, new uh, supply, uh, and compare that to underlying demand for new housing, household formation, obsolescence, second vacation homes, we're, we're shy by about 100,000 a year. So if you, you kind of do the arithmetic, it comes up to about a couple million. So it, that feels like what we need. You know, we need something like that to address this in a, in a reasonable amount of time in the next, you know, three, four, five years, something like that. So um, I, I did want to ask uh, about the president's, you, you remember back in the campaign when President, uh, then candidate Biden talked about housing he often talked about it in the context of down payment assistance. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it was a way for him to talk about the racial equity gap, wealth gap. And big part of that is the fact that uh, communities of color have uh, home ownership rates that are meaningfully below uh, white households. And uh, if you and, and that goes a long way to explaining the difference in wealth between households of color and, and white households. So, you know, you've got to get people into homes so they can build wealth. And his his uh, his kind of go-to solution, and you could every time he had a town hall or an interview, this came up. It was down payment assistance. It was a I think it was a fifteen thousand yeah. dollar tax yeah. credit that was refundable uh, yeah. and right. advanceable, which was the really interesting thing about it. Meaning, you, you when you closed on the home, the money was sitting there. So that you could actually close on the home. Magically, magically. Yeah. It was a magic wand yeah. solution. <laughs> yeah. So I, I know you, you saw a lot about that. So I, I'm curious, what do you think of that down payment assistance program in the context of all the supply issues? Yeah. And how, you and know, I, how, how, would you, how would you address that? Yeah. So I mean, I, I go back to, I don't envy the policymaker set right now because this, this too is a, is a difficult challenge. So um, I, my sense is that. Uh, if they were to deploy a, a 
vastly broad-based down payment assistance program where, where you know, all first-time home buyers, which is the way it was framed, get $15,000 towards the down payment. It's really hard for me to see how that doesn't get folded into, or some large part of it doesn't get folded into home prices. So my guess is the reason why you haven't seen it folded into their proposals thus far is they're struggling a bit with how to, um, to make good on that campaign promise in a way that is actually effective. And I think the solution uh, is to target the down payment assistance in a way um, that, uh, that goes after the part of the problem that he has talked about going after, which is the racial wealth gap. And, and to, you, to the way you described it, it's exactly right. They, I think, correctly view the racial home ownership gap is playing a pretty significant role in the racial wealth gap. And so the flip side of that is the closing the racial homeownership gap can, can play a, a significant role in closing the racial wealth gap. So my, my sense is if they can find a way to target the down payment assistance to, um, to, to try to do that, as opposed to helping everybody that's going to buy the first home, um, they can target in a way that makes it small enough not to further distort the market by folding all this into home prices, yet meaningfully help solve the problem they're trying to help. So for instance, um, Urban did a blog, it wasn't me, but some others at Urban um, did a blog in which they show that if you were to limit uh, down payment assistance, um, not just by area median income, which is how people traditionally think about it, but by area median income and those whose parents didn't own a home or don't currently own a home, there are variations on this first generation idea, then uh, roughly two thirds of the recipients of the subsidy are families of color. Whereas if you remove that first generation filter, however it's defined, the number drops to like 40%. And the reason for that is a lot of folks that are below 120 area median income, which is often the threshold people talk about here, um, it gets overwhelmed by folks who are uh, LMI, low moderate income, only because they're 25 years old, who aren't gonna be you know, low moderate income in four or five years once they're out of college a ways. And that's arguably not who we should be targeting a, an enormous subsidy to. So if you filter that out and you target it to people whose parents didn't own a home, and as a result, they don't have mom and dad to lean on for down payment, um, and you go and provide down payment assistance for that group, they're the ones who arguably need it, um, then uh, it's, it, the, the equities of the targeting make a lot more sense. And the numbers get a lot smaller. That is, you're, you're helping a small enough number of people that the overall subsidy doesn't get lost in home price necessarily. So I'm not sure whether that's the right set of filters exactly, but it feels like it's that kind of solution that they're right. going to need to sort of land on in order to do good and, and not see half of the good they're trying to do washed away in, in home prices. In home prices. And I know you and I have been working on a, a, a kind of a different approach to helping bridge that racial equity gap. And I want to, I'm going to, I'd, I'd like you to describe that idea. And then we're going to ask Chris and Ryan whether they like the idea. So let's, so uh, they, I don't think they know, they, I haven't talked about this with them. So uh, go ahead and describe. Okay. Well, I, I, for the record, for, for listeners who can't see you, Mark had a very serious look on his face when he asked them to opine on this. So I, I, I'm not sure I, I will, I'll discount the, uh, the honest, uh, honesty. We, we no, 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 no. I want to hear, I want uh, to hear the, uh, well, now you look mean again. See again, <laughs> listeners, I'm just, I'm just letting you, I want you oh, full transparency. Uh, I don't okay. do that. Yeah, we're a thousand <laughs> flowers, intellectual flowers bloom. And, and uh, mean again, mean again. Uh, don't buy it, listeners. Don't buy it. Um, okay, so so the, the idea of the program is at a high level pretty simple, which is um, 
come up with a product, a loan product for a, a, for a certain targeted set of borrowers. And we too were thinking about this sort of first generation um, low market income group of folks as the, the ideal target. Um, for those folks, uh, offer a product where they can take out an FHA loan um, that has monthly payments uh, that are roughly equal to what a loan through FHA of the same size um, would have been in a 30-year product, uh, yet this product would be a 20-year product. So in essence, you're, you're locking in whatever they would have qualified for at FHA. So hopefully it's something they can, they can afford at least vis-a-vis -vis the FHA sort of underwriting system. Um, but, uh, but, but, uh, putting them into a 20-year loan instead. And the logic there is, um, A, it's, it's ideally it's affordable because you've, you've solved for what they could have qualified for in a 30-year, um, but they're going to build wealth at roughly twice the clip um, that they would have in a 30-year. And if you look at the numbers, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty remarkable uh, because of the, um, uh, the amortization schedule, you're, you're roughly building twice uh, the equity at the three-year mark, the five-year mark, uh, the 10-year mark, sort of all the way through uh, that you would in a 30-year. The numbers are just uh, pretty remarkable that way. And so um, if you put folks into that product, uh, two things happen. One, their risk profile diminishes pretty quickly. They wind up with enough equity in the home that the severity of loss to FHA drops pretty, pretty dramatically, um, uh, pretty quickly. Uh, and secondly, they obviously build wealth at a much greater clip uh, than, than they would have uh, had in a 30 year. Uh, and so that's sort of the idea. And we can get into the mechanics of how you actually do it, which is sort of behind the scenes and maybe not relevant. Um, and, and the political, the politics of this, which are mildly interesting, and then I'll stop and let you guys um, opine, uh, uh, is it's, it's got a bit more bipartisan appeal than normal down payment assistance does. Uh, the, the whole 20 year fast amortizing loan has been a, a conservative sort of idea for, for a long time anyway. Um, and if you target it in a way that has a uh, particular strength uh, among families of color, there's a way to dock that thinking, the logic that conservatives have brought to this, to you know, what's been a, um, a recently pretty strongly you know, progressive, strongly felt progressive policy, which is trying to uh, marshal home ownership as a, as a lever to, to close the racial wealth gap. So th the hope is we can get some bipartisan appeal here um, to push something that, um, you know, at the end of the day, we estimated it, it's you know, three or four million folks over, over is, it five, is it five years, Mark? I forget. I the, think we came up horizon. with two, two million over the five two year period, okay. two million over the five years. We, we had a budget constraint. so. Go figure. They gave us a budget and said, you know, what can you do with this budget? And we said, with 25 billion over uh, the next uh, four or five years, we can uh, we expect two million uh, homeowners to to benefit from this. Yeah. Anyway, that was a long-winded explanation, but you sort of do you get the concept? I mean, it's a pretty straightforward. Yeah. Concept. What do you guys think? What do you what do you honest honest opinion? We just you know, go ahead. What do you think, Chris? You first. Me first. All right. Um, Chris is always cautious. He's a very cautious. No, no, I, uh, I'll, I'll jump right in. Now he's going to come with like ten questions. And, <laughs> no, no, you know, no question. Okay. I've heard I've heard a lot of these pitches over the years. Right, I've been in the mortgage industry a long time. I know, it doesn't sound good. No, that's yeah. my preamble. So yeah, it, it sounds it sounds great. It sounds like a lot like a graduated equity mortgage, or effectively you're subsidizing the rate, uh, right? Yeah. So 
all good, all nice. Um, but again, I've seen a lot of these programs, a lot of pilots, and they all you know, they have a certain success, but they never reach the, uh, the critical mass. So I think that's fine. I, I think it's good to try, but I, I don't see this as the real issue. I think it's more about uh, you know, financial literacy, education, providing opportunities. Those are, the, uh, those are the real issues that I see here. And I, to be honest, I think um, you can approximate what you're doing already with a 30-year uh, mortgage. I don't know if we need another product type out there uh, to mm. accomplish this. So that's, that's my view. I, I've seen, a, again, a, a lot of these. It's a, it's a good idea, but I, again, I don't see it as the root cause of the, uh, of the issue here. In, in terms of the take, it sounds like you're, you're saying that it may not get the take up we expect it to get. Is that kind of, when you say critical mass, is that what you mean? Yeah, the take, there's also the, I don't know, I, I guess you're going to hold these on portfolio. There's the liquidity perspective of this. I guess this is you're saying this is a government program. We're just going to hold yeah. it on the on No, we securitize. We securitize. Another Gini security. It's definitely subsidized, yeah. It's, gonna be, it's not going to be terribly liquid, though, right? It's, uh, I don't know how the investor would look like look yeah, at exactly. it. You know, but, yeah, those are, those are all reasonable concerns. Yeah, reasonable. You, you've got to, I mean, this is not to get too far into the hood, but the, the idea would be Treasury, frankly, buys NBS backed by these loans um, uh, at a premium sufficient to get lenders to make them. They, in turn, sell them in the secondary market at a discount um, large enough to attract investors, and that's how you sort of generate the liquidity. And the twenty-five billion is just the is the the uh, the sum of those two of those two subsidies. And the, the thinking is, for we talked to some secondary market folks, and and their assumption is that the prepay speeds on these things will be like you know zero. No one's going to prepay out of these things because of the discount rate. And so there will be if you if you get the the discount right, um, there will be a, a you know a decent market for them because they'll be a relatively secure investment over a period of time. But it just depends on how much is subsidized, uh, both ends. Yeah, my sense is that home buyers are very very sensitive to the monthly payment. So if you if you give them a a twenty year mortgage with a monthly payment that's anywhere in the ballpark of a thirty year, why wouldn't I do that? Right? I mean, I mean, I for the same monthly payment, I can build equity twice as fast, you know, over the next decade, you know, something like that. So I don't, I know that I'm not sure take up would be an issue. It's just, it just depends on how you price it. I mean, if you get close enough to the 30 year, I don't know why you wouldn't get take up or do you, do you have a different? Yeah, but you're going to, sure. no, no, I, I think that's yeah. true, but you're going to limit the the population uh, significantly. That is, okay. that qualifies for this, that population has to know about it. They have to be interest they have to be right know, there's a lot of skepticism out there about the all these new products so well you heard jim sell it so, so if jim anyway. sells it no you know there's not gonna there be you problem. go there you go no no problem he should he's gonna do that i, well, I wish you all the best i'm just uh, skeptical yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no no that's fair that's all that's all fair all, all, all very reasonable uh, ryan do you have a perspective on that well until chris chimed in i really liked it i mean you guys are the housing <laughs> experts so i'm gonna leave it to you but you know chris is yeah. you know yeah, the party pooper. No, no, come yeah. on. Yeah. And then, with regards to the, the the secondary market, couldn't the Fed play a role in this? I mean, they're already buying MBS under the every so MBS under the sun. They could, they and then could. that's how you kind of link their uh, new initiative of all inclusive type recovery. I mean, yes, they're going to aim for low oh, unemployment rates. That's an interesting thought. Uh, and then you get them to be yeah. you, they purchase this. 
So you say to Chair Powell, hey, uh, uh, Chair Powell, this is a way to uh, use monetary policy to help uh, become uh, a more inclusive economy. That's interesting. Correct. Yeah. Or address the, the wealth inequality. And Powell's yeah. chimed in on this you know, yeah. all the time. I mean, so. to, to be clear, it's, it's a... Uh, I don't mean to be overly defensive about this. But it, it's a, it's, it's not intended to solve. Like, if, if you were to come up with a list of the housing problems of the day, uh, which we, you know, spent the first chunk of the podcast talking about, like this isn't, this isn't yeah. a supply side thing. This doesn't expand home ownership. Like, it's not intended to do any of that. It's intended to simply accelerate uh, the sort of utility of home ownership as a wealth building tool. For those that you know that need it most, so it's it's not meant to be a grand slam. It's sort of like a double when you need it, kind of thing. Well, and also mm -hmm. fits in the context of the current environment, right? Because if you, you know, again, if you do something that juices up demand, it's counterproductive. That's not what this does. It's not about creating new demand. It's about for those people who are going to become homeowners, helping them uh, build that wealth uh, more quickly, you know, over time. But. Uh, Oh, okay. Well, very good. I, you know, we've already, I can't believe it. I think an hour has passed. Uh, so I, I think we probably should call it quits. I, I did want to say that, um, uh, you know, I, uh, I've been a professional economist for 30 plus years. This is my birthday, by the way. Did I tell you that? It was my birthday. <laughs> uh, and uh, birthday. Show. thank you. Thank you. Uh, and uh, I, I've, spent a lot of time and energy on the housing and housing finance market. Of course, I'll give you my three cents about almost anything, but you know, housing <laughs> and housing finance has always been front and center uh, for, for me. And uh, that goes to the fact that housing is so central to a well-functioning economy. It always, it feels like every single business cycle, housing, housing finance has something to do with what's going on in that business cycle. And that clearly was the case 10 years ago. It was, you know, go back to the, the 1990s, the SNL crisis. And, you know, even today we've got, you know, a uh, different set of problems in the housing, housing finance mar uh, markets, but uh, problems that are, you know, difficult and, you know, really make a, a difference in people's lives. So it's, it's been a, a very important for me to, a uh, place for me to focus uh, my attention. And uh, I, I think that, you uh, uh, we have some very large problems here with uh, with regard to uh, uh, home ownership and uh, for getting people into home ownership with the the severe affordable supply issues we have, and we really do need to focus uh, policy on addressing these questions. And hopefully, uh, in uh, the debate and discussion that's going on now in Washington, uh, housing does take on a more central role because. Without addressing the housing issues, the affordability issues, the home ownership issues, a lot of these other problems that policymakers are trying to address uh, will be much more difficult to solve. Uh, so it's a very uh, critical issue for for uh, for Washington to focus on, and hopefully we, we see more of that over the next uh, few weeks, few months. So with that, we're going to call it a, a podcast. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, listening in. Um, uh, I did want to say if you. Uh, have any uh, questions for us? I, I know I've said this a couple uh, weeks now, but we're collecting questions. But if you have any questions for us or anything you, any topics you want us to to address, uh, please let us know. Uh, uh, we have uh, what, what's the URL that we have? I can't remember. Is it Inside Economics 
what is it? Does anyone remember what the, the email? The email. Yeah, the email. Yes. So, yeah. The email, inside, inside. The email address. Okay. What is the email address? Go ahead, Chris. No, go ahead. Inside economics at moody's.com. At moody's.com. Inside economics at moody's.com. Okay. That that's our email address. Please uh please fire away and uh we're gonna um uh, we're gonna answer those questions in the not too distant future. So with that, thank you and uh we'll uh, we'll be back next week. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Mark. Happy thanks, birthday. Thanks guys.